pride myself on never being, not being one of those people who talks about where I went to university. I never think about where I went to university ever. Uh, I do. Do you constantly? The, where did, did you? Because it because it belittles me intellectually. Did you bang your head on a beam <laughs> on the way in? No, but the guy in Star Wars, one of those stormtroopers, did. So yeah. you know, yeah, you're go. okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're in great company. Now, I, I, yeah, what part of the part of the story that we had to get rid of was was you talking about Horace? Yes. <laughs> who <laughs> sounds like you, <laughs> like your local boulanger, but actually, <laughs> I would have thought that, that to be involved in the football media, you, you ought to have read at least, at least <laughs> some Horace. <laughs> at least some Horace. It's working Dixon's. You should have. <laughs> Basic and understanding of Latin. And you said that you, ha- you hated Horace. <laughs> Apropos. What, what was Horace? Uni- tell us about Horace. My three university interviews, the story was, was this, and it's, uh, it's not one I like telling because it sounds like you're showing off. This people is now the second version of this. <laughs> it's going to be really quick. My th- I had three, three interviews to, d- to get into university, and the first two were unmitigated disasters. Uh, one, because I didn't like the, the, the tutor, but it kind of went okay. And the second one was because on the way in, in a very low slung room, I banged my head on a beam, <laughs> at which point I remember thinking, this interview is completely pointless. Some sort of 16th century beam. And then, oh, 15th century beam. No, oh, 13th, 13th century beam. 13th at, at best. <laughs> so what came off worse, the beam or your head? My, oh, head. That's a, my that, head. That is a solid beam, because wood, over time, it becomes like steel. It does. It does. Yeah. So it's not a wooden beam. That is much more than and wood. And you know that. that. Is, I, because, I do know that. Because you were a landscape gardener. Absolutely. Yeah. Which wood is how just gets harder and harder. Anyway, how do we get from landscape gardening to bumping your head on a beam? And Horace. <laughs> and Horace. Horace. That's horrible. That's the range of this podcast. That's what. That's, that's its glory. <laughs> that's in why, a nutshell. That's why we're not nominated for any awards. <laughs> the, Yet. And haven't got any advertising. The, um, <laughs> and then the third one, which was like my safety interview, uh, was... I, I studied classics, as you all know, but the listeners perhaps don't. Uh, and one of the one of the questions that they asked you was, "What were you? What 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 set texts are you reading at A level?" And I was reading the the, the Odes of Horace. Oh, the Odes uh, of Horace! Haven't we all? Which uh, in the original? The um, <laughs> I was speaking to Randy Booth about the Odes <laughs> of Horace. Oh, he would be. Yes, is he there was, a cliff notes version there. of that? <laughs> yeah, there will be. Oh, yeah. I'll, the, I'll, I'll pick it up. I mean, it, it loses something when it's not in the original Latin. But the um, <laughs> can they make the, a film of it? Is it filmable? No. Jason Statham, no? Yeah, well, everything is filmable. Jason Statham, Statham is Horace. 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 The, um, Horace sounds like a villain that Terry Hardcastle might have to do. Anyway, I said to the tutor... You are my Moriarty, Horace. I said to the tutor that I hated Horace, and he asked me to explain why. So at length, as a cocky 17-year-old, I explained why I hated one of the greatest writers of the ancient world with my strong and excellent opinions. Mm. And at the end of it, he just said, in a very soft voice, a very soft man, Dr. Mackay, uh, said, I've actually recently published a volume full of admiration for Horace. <laughs> at which point I decided I wasn't going to university. <laughs> volume? Well, it was a book, but a thin a book, book, thin academic book. Yeah. It was the Cliff Notes version that Steve now says that he's going to read. Yeah, I, I might well, yeah. Is, it, is, it, is Professor Mackay still around? Is, would he be able to send me a copy, maybe signed? I would assume so. He, I mean, we're not still in touch. Well, no, I wouldn't Did you say so. Dr. McCoy? Dr. Mackay. Oh, not the guy from Star Trek, then. No, no, not no. Him. He didn't later go into <laughs> no. into classics. No. no. This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. And welcome to our four-part summer special series, in which we'll be ignoring what's currently going on in Russia, because full disclosure. As we speak to you now, it hasn't started yet. Owing to the fact that Rory will be chasing all the big stories of the World Cup, whether it be the Icelandic player who grew up eating hamsters or how, as their team bus might have had plastered on the side of it, Panama proved they are more than just a canal. Your intrepid New York Times reporter will be out there for the duration, so we're front-loading our Smith access to bring you some alternative soccer chat throughout the tournament. 
So, with me, Hugh Ferris, are the aforementioned Rory Smith, the newly mentioned Stephen Wyeth, and the never-to-be-mentioned-again Andy Hinchcliffe. Um, during the course of these four weeks, we do still encourage you to get in touch at setpiecemenu on Twitter or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will be able to reflect your thoughts when we're all together again after our final episode. Wow. Thanks, Chinch. That's excellent yeah. audience reaction. Uh, so then, consider us the counter-programming, the art house movie that's released the same week as Star Wars, as we bring you a four-part series about the people who shaped modern football. It won't be everyone who shaped modern football. That would be a book. And we don't have a publisher like Rory has willing to pay us. So we'll focus on four examples over the next four weeks, one nominated by each of the set-piece menu team. At the end of it, two things will happen. Number one, There'll be a soccer story, courtesy of Andy Hinchcliffe, which for you will be worth the wait. And two, there will be food, courtesy of Andy Hinchcliffe, which for us will be worth the wait because he's not cooking it. Yes, in roughly a month's time in your life, the chinch is taking us out for lunch. We are going to the local vegetarian establishment, Greens. Yes. Which, for um, those of the uninitiated South Manchester folk, one of the restaurants owned by the British celebrity TV chef Simon Rimmer, which I only mentioned because it proves that Chinch conforms to the old adage, once a footballer, always a footballer. Self-esteem isn't about who you are. No. It's about the company you keep. It is me and Rimsey, very close. So that's to look forward to, although it will arrive a lot sooner in our lives than it will in your ears. We'll also be playing a silly game that is apropos to nothing, apart from giving you a chance to laugh at us. So to part one of our series on some of the people who have shaped modern football. And we're going to start Stone the Flaming Crows with Andy Hinchcliffe. It's extraordinary this, isn't it? And do you know what this is? Listen to this. Do you know what that is for the first time ever? That is the money money with which you're going to pay for lunch. It isn't. It's (laughs) prep research. Cliff notes on Horace. I was that interested in this, Steve, that I actually did some work on it. I'm sat at the other end of the table to Chinch, so I can't uh, peer over his shoulder as to what he's prepared. Stop it, Rory. Stop reading my notes. The most extraordinary thing about it from this distance is that he's used highlighter options on his, I'm a big fan. On his document. Highlighting, colour coding. Yep. St- I'm a more big than one page? Of course there's more than one page, because oh. this is such an interesting even gentleman. Some, even some handwritten notes in the borders. Yes. Sit back, everybody. This yes. is time to have a cigar. Yes. There is an element of this that, you know, when you're at a wedding and you see the father of the bride stand up very proudly to say, you know, to start his speech, and he's got 14 or 15 pages of paper, and you just think, oh, my you God. Your seat, don't you? no. There is an element of that there isn't. about this. No, there isn't, because the final page hardly has anything on it. So that's that true. is probably not going to be used because the bulk, the bulk of it is here in two pages. Well, then inform us, enlighten right. us. Right, so with right, that okay. incredible and slightly excruciating build-up, mm. Chinch, you better deliver. Right. Who is your person who helped shape modern football? Well, I'm going to build into it. I'm not just going to go steaming in with a name. I was born 1969. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> the year of the cock are all. <laughs> and I first started noticing watching football late, probably late 70s, 77 cup finals, probably the first game I watched. And the person that I watched on TV presenting football uh, was Jimmy Hill. Now, don't start saying, oh, Jimmy Hill, hasn't he got a big chin? You've got a big chin, chin, chin haven't you? Is that yeah, why you've we'll, got do that. we'll do that Let's later, not go I? down that road, because that's just embarrassing. It is, for everyone. He started smiling as soon as I said, Jimmy <laughs> Hill, I know what you were going to do. As soon as, you, as soon as you put on the WhatsApp group that you wanted to talk about Jimmy Hill, that was my that was, that was, that was an instant reaction. Brothers in chins. So, yeah. so I just think, oh, he's always been this middle-aged guy. He's on TV. This is what Jimmy Hill is. This is what he's always done. But no, 
You dig <laughs> deeper. He didn't come out of his mother <laughs> as a TV pundit. He didn't. <laughs> it turns in out the 1970s. <laughs> you dig deeper, and what we have is one of the chief architects of the modern game in Britain. You're incredulous, aren't you? I'll tell you more. <laughs> he changed the way Hold me back. football is played, football is watched, and football is analysed. So, on the pitch, in the director's box, in the, on, by the touchline, on TV, he changed so many things about the game. He worked as a player, administrator, manager, chairman, presenter, commentator. So there's not many people, <clears throat> I think going back to that time when football started to uh, be so popular, that covered virtually everything you could probably do in football, Jimmy Hill did. And it's actually some of the groundbreaking things that he was involved in which changed the game, which are still prevalent today. Do you have examples? So I have more than one example. <laughs> I have two and a half pages worth. He introduced all-seater stadia. He was the first general manager to introduce commercial <clears throat> sponsorship to football clubs at Coventry. He was the first man to promote the idea of three points for a win. And, of course, he shaped television coverage. But that is something that I'm going to come to later because... I feel like this is structured. His, it's very structured because <laughs> I'm reading down my script. <laughs> his defining involvement in the game has to be the campaign to abolish the maximum wage mm. for players. So what it did, it transferred the balance of power from the clubs to those who are actually generating the income, which is the players, because that's not how it used to be now. So the earning power, what we, we look at modern players now, the vast amount of money that they earn in Britain actually stems from the work that Jimmy Hill did when he was chairman of the PFA. Again, do you want me to tell you more about how this all came about and when it all started? It's fascinating, isn't it? It is fascinating. We just presume football's always been this well-paid job and that's how it's always been, but no people. It wasn't like that at well, all. Well, I know it's not that because my granddad was a player in the era of the maximum wage. What year are we talking? He played for Coventry and Birmingham from 1928 to 1935. Yes. Pre-war and then retired. I think he was basically retired by the war mm. and then became a fishmonger. A roving fishmonger. The sort of fishmonger that would feature in a soft porn movie. <laughs> Except that this one oh, was in, was in Leicester. <laughs> <laughs> Which, actually, just thinking back, I'm sure there would have been plenty to uh, choose from in the 1970s softcore porn mm. industry. And Bernard Smith earned more money as a fishmonger than he did as a footballer. So what was, what was the limit? What was the maximum? Well, have a guess. What you, in 1957, this is when it all kicked off, what do you reckon there was a cap on what players could earn? What Tw was the... £20 a week. You, have you been reading my notes? No, I just know football history. £20 a week. <laughs> this, is, Chinch, this is all new Am to I you. Am I preaching to the but converted? To Rory, who's written a You're book. Not, you, you, are, you are preaching to, to the converted, but I, I, I don't know as much about Jimmy Hill as I should, so yes. I'm eager to learn. So again, what's, what's £20 a week in modern money, Chinch? £20 a week... In '57, <laughs> it was it was. What I mean, we needed someone could you buy to buy a Ferrari with it. I doubt it very much. A big house in Cheshire. I doubt it very much. By the time they abolished it, it was below. I think it was it. Most most players were earning less than average kind of workers. So if we think the average salary at the moment is twenty eight grand a year mm. in Britain, I would say that that twenty pound a week would be below that by the time they abolished it, which was yeah, 61, yeah. I think. Eventually got it 61. But the, the imbalance was, the, the, the big teams at that time were getting 60,000 plus coming through the gates. So I think when Jimmy Hill was playing and then he got voted to be the chairman of the PFA, he said, wait a minute, there's got to be the players. How are the players' earnings capped when the clubs are bringing in huge, not huge revenues, but for obviously the money that was coming through the door, 
about 450 quid a week, roughly speaking. So 450 quid a week now, which but again compared to what in the new clubs, money, what the clubs were bringing in at that time, 60,000 times, you know, what what, yeah. the, what the clubs would be earning from that was enormous. So, so it was kind of that imbalance between the players and the clubs. 450 a week is yes. 2,400 a month. Mm-hmm. No. Hang on, four, hang on, four fifty. Eighteen hundred. Eight, yeah, 1800. so four fifty a week is eighteen hundred. About, about two grand, two grand a month. Call it two grand a month, which is twenty four grand. So it's, as we said, just below the the, av- the equivalent average, weight, yeah. average wage. Yeah. So you can see where the players actually sat, and that's what he was looking at. And when he was when he was voted chairman of the PFA, this is the, one of the first things he looked at. But there's a reason why he got heavily involved in it because what was happening? Players like John Charles were leaving Britain to go and play in Italy because there was no cap on on wages. In Italy, so that's why a lot of the players think, well, I can't earn money here. I'm one of the top players. I'm going to go abroad. So, again, Jimmy Hill was thinking, well, if we're trying to keep these players in this country, we have to work to try and abolish the maximum wage because players are going to keep leaving, and it's going to be to the detriment of the English game. So, what happened was there was apparently there was a confrontation between the PFA and the Football League because at Sunderland there was apparently payments being made to players kind of under the table, which the Football League got wind of. So, whether it was true or not, they were unhappy that this was happening. So. Jimmy Hill got involved in this as chairman of the PFA and said this, 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 whether it's happening or not, there's a reason why this is happening because the players can't live their lives because they're not earning enough money. Hugh is diddling, I don't know why. Uh, because Steve was so in, intrigued by what you were saying, his, mm. his breathing was almost erotically heavy. He has, <laughs> he has, he has, Hugh, whilst you were telling yes, your yes. very interesting story, Hugh, Thank you. has mouthed at me to stop breathing. <laughs> stop breathing? Yes. Stop breathing. So through your nose. Apparently, yes. I can listen but not breathe. Just, so apologies just, if I start to go puce. Needs, he needs okay. <laughs> that might be slightly <laughs> off-putting, Steve, so I'm looking directly at you. He, he needs to sit there less uh, entranced, more agog, okay. with, you, with your chin dropping nice and like, breathe through your mouth, man. So anyway, these Sunderland players... There was <laughs> Did we feel like that was a good point of which to introduce Absolutely, that? yeah. Steve's going to die. I think we, uh, we needed to deal with that situation. So yeah, they got involved in this and... Um, the Sunderland players were suspended by the Football League. Uh, the PFA, Jimmy Hill, got involved in this and said, look, this can't happen. He got them reinstated. But then, because they wanted this, the maximum wage abolished, it got to a point where he was quite willing to bring the players out on strike. And it was 1961, as you mentioned, January 1961. It got to a point where they were within, within four days of a general strike. Of the Is that players. Right? Yes. They were that close? They were that close. That's what I've written down here. Um, <laughs> they were that close. So when eventually it got to a point. So four days away from a general strike, the Football League capitulate and say fine, we realise that you are actually going to follow through and strike. So the maximum wage for players was abolished. They then had freedom at the end of their contracts to move between clubs as well. So from that point on, you've got football and its finances are completely changed because then the power is with the players to earn and to move from club to club quite freely when they didn't have that ability to do so before. So seismic people, seismic change within the game in 1961. That bit about the contracts is really important as well because that was the retain and transfer system, which meant that even when your contract at a club came to an end, the club still owned you, which is a form of... Like indentured labour, mm. and we, you, you had that stayed until yeah, but Bosman, ha- didn't it? Well, no, not 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 quite. Just, just Jimmy Hill got rid of it as well. Ah, I see. But the you had these situations where there, there, to be fair, without wanting to plug it, there is there is an example, uh, more than one example in the, in the book, where players came That's to the end of the contract. We'll plug it for it's you. An excellent book. The where players got, came to the end of, came to the end of the contracts. The clubs didn't want them. They couldn't find someone they would sell them to. So the players had to drop down onto a kind of a basic wage. Mm. And not play, and they just—that was just it. The clubs could kind of keep them for as long as they liked. So if, if the clubs decided they didn't want to sell sell the player, mm. or did they didn't want to sell the player to a specific team, they just sat in the reserves, That's fine. They could rotted. Decide. That was it. 
and you didn't you earn even less than you were anyway which wasn't very much so we're talking it's only 50 years it seems a long time but 50 years ago you can't imagine yeah. players being in a position because you just presume it's always been like it is today that everyone's got the freedom to earn what they want play for who they I want people, but it never used to be like I that I think people know that it that this kind of totally kind of open player power world that we're in now is, yeah. is relatively new but I, I think the, the scale of what, what it was like up until 61 is still quite eye-watering for mm. people because it, it, it is so old-fashioned the idea that any company could be like well, I mean it's, the, it's kind of the same as, as in Qatar where you, you have to you're kind of totally beholden to your employer and you're not allowed to leave the country without their permission mm. it's not that it's not as bad but it's not it's on the same it's on the same kind of curve where you could a club bought you and then two, three years later, your contract came up. They decided they didn't want you anymore. You couldn't be sold. So they just put you on the transfer list, paid you, cut your wages, and then that was it. That, that You had to support your family. It, isn't, it, it was an astonishing it's like system. A human, it's like a human rights issue. I know it's got obviously the, the, the way you want to work. It would be now, wouldn't it? It would be argued under the convention of human rights. It's not quite slavery, is it? But actually, you're tying people... To, 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 to work that they, that they don't want to do anymore. But when I said European Convention of Human Rights, Roy gestured to me, which suggested in his mind that Brexit was going to be the next word that came out. Uh, <laughs> really was. Yeah. We spent too much time together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just gestured with his hand as if to say, oh, Brexit. No, I was going to say, which fortunately we won't have to deal with from March 2019. That was going to be and, my And we need another Jimmy Hill. It certainly do. But what's interesting about the, you bringing up Jimmy Hill, apart from the natural facial features, yes. that, is that you have... So many parts of your life which yes. have been directly affected this by Jimmy Hill. This is why I went for James Hill. Can you not now see? If that, was my, that was my way of allowing you to move oh, on to... Oh, I see. Yes, yeah. That's why I was obviously a player, and he wasn't the greatest <laughs> player, played for Fulham, played for Brentford. But clearly... It, Again, it was, still, it, still similar. He was, yes. <laughs> he was a bit of a self-publicist as well, but yeah. he, he yep, clearly... Still, what, still. A lot of what he did was genuinely... Yes, he wanted to be at the centre of attention, but what he did was for the good of the game and for the good of players. So maybe he, he foresaw what was going to happen in terms of the power that players didn't have at that time, not necessarily take it to the extent that they have now. I think players in many ways have too much power in terms of how the game is run and how people listen to them and, and take their advice when they didn't used to, clearly didn't used to do that. They were just the workers and the clubs were earning the money and they just did their job. So he maybe, again, was that visionary to see that he was in the business, but then to be able to be playing the game and see the bigger picture as well. There's very few, certainly people, let alone players, that could do the job, step into the PFA, realise that this needed to be changed for the good of the game and for the good of all the players, not just himself. So I think that's why he's so unusual. And then from things moved on in, in terms of other avenues that he went into as well. So he didn't just stop there and he said, well, I've done my job now. I'm just going to carry on playing and concentrate on a playing career. It, it went huge from there as well. You mentioned about being a self-publicist and, and clearly if you're going to be on television, you need that part of you. Mm. But... Do you think that each of the people that are going to be talking about or potentially just starting with Jimmy Hill, yeah. you need to have a little bit of arrogance about you to think that what your idea is will be significant and will change the game? Well, you have to have enormous belief in what you're doing. That's an enthusiasm to keep going because when they started in 57 to, to, to abolish the map, it, it took four years. It's not something that they just basically said, well, tomorrow can we sort this all out? You had to keep going with it and believe that what you were doing was right. And clearly he did. And eventually the change was made but it took time so enthusiasm and belief I think in anything are vitally important if you're going to make huge changes to, to any business and that's that's clearly how, how he felt about the, uh, the the changes that he felt needed to be made So the omni-shambles that we are currently experiencing with wages being sky high transfer fees completely absurd this is all Jimmy Hill's fault this is, is the, Actually well, in, in terms of his, his television as well and the, the promotion of television 
and the coverage of football, again, he promoted, because the amount of uh, television revenue that's come into the game as well, which has fueled the rise in wages and transfer, a lot of it is from TV money that's come into it. So again, I'm going to go into this a little bit later, what he did in terms of TV coverage and how he pioneered, he again realised the value of, of television and football on television. Without wishing to indulge Steve's provocative miser- miserableness too much, <laughs> it is better, I think, that although the wages are totally out of whack and the transfer fees are, are ridiculous and there is that sort of, what's the word, kind of ennui almost with, with the scale of the money involved in football now, it is better that the money goes to the players than lines the pockets of the clubs. Absolutely. I think most people agree that e- even, even though you can be kind of nauseated by how much peop- certain players earn, they are the ones providing the entertainment and they are in a market. So we don't necessarily object to one of your famous Hollywood actors, Dennis Quaid. (laughs) (laughs) An exorbitant amount of money. Dennis Quaid is the best actor. Name me a bad Dennis Quaid film. He could play Jimmy Hill, couldn't he, in the Jimmy Hill story. Name me a bad Dennis Quaid film. Is is he in the one where he gets shrunk and injected into somebody's... Name me a Dennis Quaid film. The Day After Tomorrow, the greatest film of all time. Oh, that is a good film, actually. (laughs) Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard of it. Dennis Quaid is the best actor. If you had a World Cup of actors, Dennis Quaid would win it. Dennis Quaid well, I mean, Dennis Quaid, for example, in the remake of Footloose. I mean, yeah, a, I mean, sorry, you, just, you cannot, you cannot get a higher power in the world of you acting. Can't remake than Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid is the best actor. That's just not. This isn't a debate. Anyway, Flight of the Phoenix. Remember Flight of the oh, Phoenix? Come on. If he had been paid fifteen to twenty million dollars for that. You wouldn't have even sniffed at it. In a space was the film I was thinking. In a space, that's that the film where he shrunk. There you go. There you go. Dennis Wade and Rutger. I'm, I'm not completely the two, stupid. The two best best actors. Anyway, <laughs> no no one objects to Dennis Quaid. I want being, to read all Dennis Quaid movies <laughs> out to you now. I will fight the temptation. Dennis Quaid. No one objects when Dennis Quaid has paid seventy five million dollars for a movie, do they? Because they know that he, he has a star power. He can attract attract people to cinemas. That he's the best actor. In the same way, it's better for the money for PSG to be siphoning all that money into Neymar's pockets than to be taking the TV money and Nasser Al-Khalifi to be buying loads of walruses or whatever. Yeah, but obviously, you know, Dennis Quaid, we've established, he's box office. If he's in the movie... He isn't, though, is he? Shush, Chinch. If he's in the movie, Sorry. you're quite happy to pay uh, 11, 12 quid to go and watch We're the all other multiplex. Yeah. But the, but like, for what, example, Jaws 3D. But I mean, he's going to be in that. <laughs> he's going to bring the hordes. But Dennis, so Dennis Quaid gets his 75 million. No Good. one's got a problem with that. No. But the guy who drives the taxi, who drops Dennis Quaid off outside of the police headquarters where he's going to go and ruffle a few feathers, yeah. does not get seven and a half million for his small right, yeah. bit part involvement in the same film. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. I don't. I don't have an answer. That, to that 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 might have been because you chose Dennis Quaid. That point might not necessarily <laughs> no, it's be valid. made so poorly. No one. No <laughs> one's going to the Parc des Princes to watch Thomas Mounier, are they? Are they not? No. Can you prove maybe, that? Maybe the Mounier family. family. Yeah. If, if Dennis Quaid is, is your forty goal a season centre <laughs> forward, and I think we can all agree that he, and is. He, and he is. That's fine. He earns his money, but the guy who plays left back, who maybe gets one assist a season doesn't sort of justify 20 million on the coattails of that. That's true, yeah. That's a fair point. Although I, I would guess in Hollywood, I don't know, I'm now out of my depth, because if it's not to do with Dennis Quaid, I'm not interested. <laughs> the, I would guess in Hollywood that as a rule, that as the stars have earned more money, the, the mid-range stars, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, people like that. People who aren't <laughs> in Dennis Quaid's <laughs> people not quite kind of class. The same caliber Robert De Niro, as, as Dennis Quaid. Those kind of people. 
they they will all have started to earn more money as well. So I guess that you do have an obviously unless you're a woman, in which case you're still massively underpaid. In Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're not laughing at that because it's no, funny. We're laughing no. at that because it's because ridiculous. it's r- ridiculous and true. The but I would guess there has been a, a knock-on effect of similar in in a similar way that Peter Dennis Twain's getting seventy-five million pounds at the movie for, for, for playing Jerry Lee Lewis in Great Balls of Fire exactly for example that someone someone <laughs> beneath him Al Pacino is now getting 20 or 30 million dollars a movie but if you're an aspiring actor and you want to be and you Quaid, get the, you get the chance to audition to be in a Quaid movie yeah you'll do I whatever I think they call it a Quaid vehicle yeah Quaid a vehicle. Quaid vehicle a Quaid you'll mobile. do whatever you can to be involved in that because that could be your big break moment yeah. If you're a jobbing fullback who gets the opportunity to be the backup defender in a Neymar team. Yeah, a Neymar vehicle. A Neymar vehicle. A Neymar mobile. You don't agree to do that for less than 50 grand a week. Yeah, that's true. Because of what what he's being paid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, no, I think you 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 are right. I, you're not you're not saying uh, uh, do you know what? I'll join PSG for peanuts just because I might get to pass the ball to Neymar once and that will be my breakthrough moment. Neymar being the Quaid of this scenario. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, another thing that we should probably say about Dennis Quaid, if you if you are young enough to not know who he is, he has an exceptionally square and prominent chin, which mm. brings us back... I was going to say, this, this podcast is about Jimmy, Jimmy Hill, Hill isn't it? We've not moved on to Dennis Quaid and so the effect he's had on the, uh, uh, the, shape, he's on the shape of modern, the modern, game. modern movies. No, so a, that's my episode. Ah, okay. If you would like to... Yes then talk about the televisual side of things because this is another strand where Jimmy Hill very much a trailblazer for Andy Hinchcliffe. But also, let's not forget, when he... Did the, the, the Trailblazer, a Dennis Quaid movie from yeah. 1984. <laughs> no, the campaign not, against the Max where people started to know who Jimmy Hill was because this was such a big story and actually he'd stopped playing. So before we go into the TV side of things, he'd actually become... Uh, he was the general manager at Coventry. So he'd gone into managing and being involved in the clubs as well. They were the, at the foot of the third division when he took them over. As I mentioned before, he brought in commercial sponsorship for the first time. Controversially. Controversially. He changed the, the team colours. He penned a new um, club anthem. A bit like Vincent Tan. And then, it, yeah, In essence, yes. <laughs> but then he took them from the foot of the third division to the first division. So again, he proved... So he'd been a player. He'd been involved in the political side of the game as well. He went into managing at Coventry and dragged them up from third, old third division to first division. So he'd shown again another string to his bow. He, he could go into football as well. So clearly he knew a lot about football, how to manage players and get results in that way. But what he wanted when he got them, <coughs> actually Coventry to first division, he actually asked for a 10-year contract, which Coventry refused. They offered him a five-year contract and he just resigned. All right. Yeah. So again, you're talking about his confidence, his belief that, yeah. well, this is how good I know I am. If you don't do this for me, I'm finished. And that's what he did. But from there, he was offered the um, a job at um, London Weekend Television. Kind of out of the blue, they they gave him the director of sport uh, role because sport at that time was primarily on the BBC. Everything was contracted to the BBC. ITV and LWT didn't have any football. So he then, once he was given that job. He worked hard to get football actually on to London Weekend Television. Um, so again, he's changing the whole the face of how football now is covered and who's actually um, showing these games. It used just to be the BBC, ITV and London Weekend Television get involved in it. And once he got involved in that, the, the breakthrough moment then was the 1970 World Cup, which ITV got more viewers for than the BBC. Really? But what he did, he was the first to introduce pundits. He was the f- he put 
three pundits together and look where we are now. And with that, and with his that, legacy was ruined. He ruined it. He had Malcolm Allison, Paddy Crerand and Derek Dugan were the first three pundits. But again, this was his thought. We, we, some, we have a presenter, we have the game, but he wanted the analysis of the game to change as well. And he was, the, again, he brought that in for the 70 World Cup and they reckon that was what brought more viewers to ITV because the three of them didn't necessarily get on that well, mm. but they were analysing the game, having these arguments and conflicts. Malcolm Allison is... is well known for anyway. Alison Crerand Duden. Yes. So the Hiddenbotham Goodman and Hinchcliffe of the 1970s. Of, yeah. of 19, the 1970 World Cup. But it was such a hit. And again, it was so different from anything that had ever been done before. But it worked and it was popular. And people tuned in. So rather than watching the BBC coverage, they watched the ITV coverage. And that would, it, it absolutely changed everything. And then he was given, he was the deputy controller of programmes, complete programmes in 1972. And he worked as an analyst as well. So he was a presenter with pundits alongside him. He also did presenting, uh, sorry, he also did um, the analysis as well with Brian Moore on the big match ITV. That's something I remember watching when I was yeah, a kid. Too, yeah. And Jimmy Hill was the analyst. So again, another avenue, he was able to assess the game and give his view on the game. As, as a presenter did the job that he'd been doing, he stepped to the side and did yet another job. So how did he get to match of the day? That's, that's where, where I really remember him. To. Okay. 1973. Right. Were you born? No, no I was minus here. nine. He was he was taken from ITV, like in a like in a Liam Neeson film. He was taken, not in that. I don't think he, <laughs> he was, does have some special skills. I don't skills. think they put a hood like on him, Terry him the back of a, a, a transit van and drove him <laughs> to the BBC. I think they offered him a lucrative contract, <laughs> a ten-year contract, <laughs> along with Bob Wilson. Remember Bob Wilson? Yeah. Don't remember, but Bob Wilson's done nothing about. He's a lovely fellow, Bob Wilson. No, don't say, yeah. do you remember? Do you remember him doing Match of the Day? Yeah. No. This is Match of the Day with and Jimmy he Hill. He do Sports Night. He was one of the BBC yeah, presenters. Yeah. He I was remember one of the... I remember, remember Bob Wilson presenting Grandstand. Yes, that... that he match of the Day is where, with Bob Wilson and Jimmy Hill, that's where, again, the BBC's coverage completely changed. Yeah. They, they, he was there. Jimmy Hill was there for 15 years match of the day and again he incorporated all the things he'd started with ITV with the pundits the way the game was covered he presented he was an analyst as well so again he, he shaped the BBC's coverage of football and how football is viewed and analysed so it's just incredible that again it's so popular that to, to go from ITV to, to, to BBC is, is a tricky move to make isn't it but he was quite happy to do that presumably financially it worked out well for him and he was given again the licence to say right what are we going to do here? And he was he was the person that drove Match of the Day for, for 15 years from the early 70s. What do you think is his greatest contribution to football? At the start, I said it has to be, of course, that the maximum wage, the abolition of the maximum wage, because it changed the face of, of football, but so many of the players' lives. And he was a player. But he clearly felt he was acting in the best interests of the players at that time. So that has to be that has to be the, the biggest change that he oversaw. But in terms of coverage now and how popular football is, the money that TV companies pay into the game, this all started, again, with Jimmy Hill in the early 70s, and he was a pioneer for that as well. So that is probably just maybe as important in terms of, of how important TV is in fans' lives because a lot of people will watch the game rather than go to the games now. Or they don't have the opportunity to go to games, so they have to, to pay to watch matches. And this was something, the way that football is covered was, was something that he put in place. I think, t yeah, the fact that he helped turn it into televisual entertainment... It probably can't be underestimated. And that's what he was keen. He was keen to have himself. He was very strong, strong opinions, and he always believed he was right. He had people like Malcolm Allison. He didn't have people who sat on the fence mm. and kind of. Well, I think it's this. I think he had very strong characters, and he was keen to promote that because he felt that. Again, it still happens today. People are given jobs. I feel off the back of, of what they're willing, how controversial maybe they're willing yeah. to be to get people involved 
in the game. And you imagine what? Imagine if he was involved today with social media. What blind? What avenues he would imagine, take? Imagine Jimmy Hill's Snapchat. <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> or his Instagram story, at the very least. Um, but that's interesting because there's there's two types of pundits these days. They are the pundits who get a job because of their career, and there mm. are pundits who get the job because of how good they are on television. Yeah. Sometimes that that ability to be controversial or just to simply be adversarial for, for no reason yep. so is, is manufactured yes. because, for example, there are radio stations and radio programmes that encourage that. Mm-hmm. But let's, some, not, let's not bite the hand that feeds us, everybody. Um, no, I, I actually didn't mean any oh, of the ones talk, that I work for. Talk about <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but there are But there are those who get jobs because of the, the, the strength of their career and not necessarily because they're televisually yeah. Yeah. interesting. So Jimmy Hill would probably react strongly to the fact that he would want to see everybody on television who was good on television. Yes, yeah. Well, that, And the thing with him is, it's really strange. If you're a, a former player, it's how quickly your career is forgotten. And then it's about becoming a really good broadcaster and being known for being a good broadcaster and good at what you do. Where Jimmy Hill really started that process of former players going into the media, but he, he was it wasn't already in place, and he just stepped into something that was already moving. He started, and he had the vision to see that this is what I feel people will want to watch. So putting it on TV in the first place was that good? Not necessarily going to work. Were people going to want to watch football on television? And then right now that they do, how do we then promote it or sell it, or how do we how do we actually cover the game? So he started that process in the first place well, it would have been easier clearly like I and many others before me have just stepped into a process that's, that's been in there since Jimmy Hill actually instigated so it, it back uh, in the uh, early 70s modern football is still grappling yeah. with this idea of do we do still what what is the tradition set in motion by Jimmy Hill or are we now in a, sp- a space that need we need something new to, yeah. to have variety or to change it um, to have it more like American sports which are covered slightly differently yeah. um, although you could probably argue it's an extension of what Jimmy Hill yeah, yeah. started off and so there's, there's a bit of a, a cr- an existential crisis going on in particularly broadcast television which is this is how it's always been mm. does that mean we have to keep doing it or should we try and embrace the millennial generation and what they're seeing elsewhere in their yeah. ento- entertainment um, so yeah the, the, the Jimmy Hill argument probably still rages on yeah. Because Sky and the Premier League obviously get a great deal of the credit for realising the value in English football in the early 1990s. But that seems to be a theme that's run through Jimmy Hill's life and involvement with the game. Is he, from, from the way that you've described it, Chinch, saw the value in football throughout his career, yeah. whichever role he seemed to be in, whether it was the value of the players in, in having the potential and the... And, and deserving to, to earn more than they were earning to all the way through to the fact that, that football is, is something to show on television had a, and it could be enhanced in value by the involvement of those who understood the game better than perhaps people who've been presenting up until that point. I think it's, and it is really important because we've been a bit of a self-publicist. Yes, it was. He wanted to be on TV. He wanted to be the voice of, of all this that was happening. But it's his willingness to to change things for everyone's enjoyment as well for players for viewers for the clubs everything he seemed to do had a, a seemed seemingly yeah, a penny's po- dropped. Know, not yeah, <laughs> not a positive effect because there are kind of as we talked about with Dennis Quaid there are ups and downs about whether players should be in a position to be earning the ludicrous amounts of money but that again has happened over the last 50 years because of the the abolition of the maximum wage so again even though he was he wanted to be front and center I was really interested in the fact that he everything he seemed to do was for the betterment of 
players, viewers, football clubs, for fans. He, he, we worked really hard to improve the game because he really loved the game. It wasn't just about him being... Because I think there's certain people we all know that you feel when you see them on TV, it's a little bit, this is just about you. you know, have you got any ideas about how to improve things maybe for other people? They wouldn't really think like that. So to be at the pioneer of, of so many things, at the start of so many things, is quite extraordinary. And it is the modern game that we have today, how it's played and how it's viewed. You have to go back to, to the work he did in the late 60s, early 70s. Just to play devil's advocate, like somebody would do, for example, on one of those radio stations that I mentioned earlier. Oh, I thought you said like Dennis Quaid. Mike. Like Dennis Quaid, Mike. A, a very famous 19, 1992 movie. I don't think actually, actor. no, there was a, there was a movie yeah, called Devil's Advocate. No, no, it was no, Al Pacino, yeah. an, an inferior actor. I don't think no, no, I think it was the, uh, Keanu Reeves, actually. And yes, Keanu, yeah, Reeves, Keanu Reeves, was Reeves was in it, but Al Pacino was the devil. He has got the range, Dennis Quaid, to play something like that. Dennis Quaid has got nothing but range. He has the full range. nothing but range. But to play Devil's Advocate, a movie from 1998 featuring... Driving range. Carry on. <laughs> the, the a lot of the criticism of modern football yes. is because of stupid wages. Yes. It's because there's too much of it on television. And Jimmy Hill, uh, and we have lauded him for this, mm-hmm. was the pioneer and, and, and the catalyst for a lot of these things. So is there a, an element to say that he probably wasn't aware of quite how much it would balloon, that he was essentially giving football or the country a bit of a gateway drug and yeah. off they went on to the hard looking stuff. At, if we're looking at the, the, abo- the abolishment of the maximum wage, there can be a sensible way. I think that's probably what he was after, that they should be paid what they're worth, not no top modern players. You can't say they justify the wages. That they, it's not their fault that they're paid what they're paid because the clubs offer them contracts. And they don't have to offer the contracts. It's up to the players whether they sign them or not. So I don't think there's no way. I'm sure if you'd asked him at the time, could you foresee a time when players are earning half a million pounds a week? I don't think you couldn't see that. But that wouldn't have been the point. It isn't. We're trying to do this because that's what we want to get to. It was getting the players probably a fair wage for the entertainment value they were providing. The clubs were making good money from the fans coming through the turnstiles. It was. If you do a good job, you should get fair pay for it. And that's what he felt wasn't happening. But where we are now is above and beyond that. That's, it's a crazy situation. But then you can still make the argument that, that they are, they're paid what they're worth because... Because of the money that's coming the into the game. Presuming the clubs aren't getting into debt by paying the salaries, then, then they're, paying what, they're paying the players what they feel is a representative sample of, of, kind of how much they contribute to the entertainment. I think the, the remarkable thing with Jimmy Hill is how much, how much of it he saw coming. That's, and that when he died, I remember reading a lot of the obituaries, and you, you knew you knew about his involvement in the abolition of the in the abolition of the, of the maximum wage, and you knew about obviously match the day in the yeah, TV, yeah, yeah. but things like the sponsorship at Coventry, the, the, his plans for All City Stadium, there's loads of other stuff as well. He he saw the game totally differently <laughs> to everybody else. There's that story. You know the story about the when he, the first game where they did put all the seats in and Coventry played Leeds. And the Leeds fans ripped the seats up and used them as missiles. So it kind of, but that wasn't Jimmy. He, he understood. No. It's that the, the view, he was thinking about the viewing public, yeah. not people picking the chairs up and using them as missiles. That should have really. chosen a different different game. Yeah, yeah but they were probably, for Leeds, probably yeah. at some point they were going to play Leeds along the way. So, but it, you know, that's not having a dig at Leeds. But that, but again, he's still and look at what we are now. All the all seats are state. So again, to have that, it's just I find it incredible. And from someone I watched on TV, thinking they're just this bearded middle-aged guy and uh, oh is that you know he's just been plonked in there but it's the story behind it and after as, as well is just incredible the other th- remarkable thing about Jimmy Hill and I don't know if this this is this fascinates me so at school when you were lying when you were as a child when you were oh make, yes make, yeah I know you go with this making yeah. something up yes 
So this is Leeds in the 1980s, right? When you were making something up, exaggerating your, you know, your football prowess or your how well you've done oh, it, whatever. This is going. You would, we would always, everyone, and I've done, I've, I've done this with mates from different <laughs> schools in Leeds, would all stroke their chins mm. and go, mm, mm, Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Hill. And then they say, they, they say Chinny Recon, Chinny Recon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. There, was, there was always like a Chinny thing, or it was just Chinny, and then yeah. you do the Jimmy Hill chin. Yes. And I think that, that seems to be something that, uh, that happened across it Britain. Is. It's yeah. true, it's very true. But, but that, you, again, his, his stature, it wasn't former footballer Jimmy Hill. No, it was, it was Jimmy, Jimmy Hill. Hill. He was that, he was, it was an entity. He was so yes. famous, he became a, like a, a, a synonym for a lying child. <laughs> 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 for apparent reason. There he is did it all with a beard like Ming the Merciless as well. <laughs> That's true. Did, did you, so you had that in, in, yeah, 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 we had that. in yeah, Hampshire. Yeah. You had something similar in South Manchester? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you said that when, when you started talking about mm, the lying. Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Hill. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's again because he was, a match of the day was so huge and he was... He was the focus on it, which is again. Did you have Chinny Reckon on page three of your notes? Or? Like it was just his body, his backgrounds again, and where he kind of. You hear this story a lot with people who have made such huge changes in the profession, but not just one profession. He was involved in so many different parts of football, and to have such an effect in all of them, it wasn't as if well that went horribly wrong. Well, actually, it did when he tried to take football to America, but we won't talk about that. But again, he <laughs> foresaw. This is very hagiographic. But <laughs> that he lost a lot of money. But again, he foresaw yeah, how the popularity yeah. and what yeah. needed to happen in America. And he saw again the value of of kind of if Americans could really embrace football, what could be achieved over there. And again, that's not necessarily because but he saw he his instincts were extraordinary, incredible, yeah, yeah. and. Um, a visionary. He was a visionary. Yeah, he was. And it, it, yeah, he wasn't always popular. No. That's important to say that no. a lot of people. But that's didn't because like him. he was opinionated. But that's because he was opinionated. And certainly not with his ex-wives. <laughs> and that. And that's be- the other thing is because he saw things being different to how they were now, and people don't like change. Yeah. And Jimmy Hill had big ideas and wasn't afraid to sort of express yeah. them. And over the next three weeks after this, uh, we will also be talking about people who changed the game, but not necessarily had open welcome arms uh, to it, receive yeah. it. Yeah, you just said exactly what I was going to say. Oh, so right, well okay. done. That's fine. But that's what I thought from, Probably from my point of view. With a little playing. bit more eloquently. Than <laughs> no, I would no, no I doubt it. I doubt it very much. Playing and then going into, I know a lot of play, ex-players do do this, but then for someone who, you know, you wonder, how, you know, how, why is this like this? That's what got me thinking about this. I had a chat with somebody else who mentioned Jimmy Hill, and I just thought, oh, this guy presented a match that no, there's far more to it, and that's what got me really interested, and that's why I made such fabulous colour-coded notes on I the think subject. That, that whole thing is amazing that Chinch made so many notes and was so passionate. I've really enjoyed that. Well, well, quite done, right Chinch. too, and I hope. That yeah, but a lot of it you would have. Cause nope. you, Steve, is any any of that news to you, or? Again, I knew the Cliff Notes version of that, Chinch, but you <laughs> yes. certainly filled in. He the knows as much about Jimmy Hill as he does about Horace, yes. um, and I appreciate the yes, the, the bits the bits in yellow. Mm. I knew more than the bits in red on your sheet, but all these circled dates yes. with an exclamation mark. Yeah. Very good stuff, back good stuff. Yeah. Did you do your own printing out? Cool. I always do my own printing out. Who am I going to get to what? I wouldn't do all the work and then give it to a minion to print out. This, this is the person who, en route to the podcast recording today, forgot a vital part of the uh, equipment and asked mm. his wife to meet him in Cheadle <laughs> because he couldn't be bothered to go <laughs> yeah, but back. But I did say to her, don't up. put the bag of headphones in the cupboard because I'm nearly 50. I'll forget they're there. Leave them out on the top. She didn't. She put them away. What did I do? Forgot them. Oh, so then she don't blame Nicky and it's only fair she sorted the problem out because she put them <laughs> in the cupboard don't blame Nicky so that is Chinch doing Jimmy Hill um, so before we go a quick little game 
Uh, we aren't able to mention the World Cup as it hasn't begun for us as we record this, even if for you it is consuming your every waking moment, but we can use it to embarrass ourselves. Each week we release the pod on a Wednesday, as you'll all know, so we're going to talk about Tuesday's games right. that have just preceded it in a segment we're going to call, I can't believe that happened. Mm. So on the 19th of June, which is the day before this uh, very podcast to which you are listening Ooh, I'll uh, be, comes out. I'll be in Ulan Ude. Will you? In, oh. in, he in says si- wistfully. In Siberia. Group H mm. has two games on the 19th of June. Colombia against Japan in Saransk and Poland against Senegal in Moscow. And in Group A, it's the first of the second mm-hmm. uh, matches in the groups, Russia against Egypt. So we're just going to go around the table. One sentence. I can't believe that happened. Chinch. I can't believe that Mo Salah has double-footed Igor Shatov <laughs> and Russia with an extra man have beaten Egypt 4-0. Wowzers, a Group A uh, dramatic moment. Yes. Rory Smith. I can't believe that Russia thought it would be a good idea to play 39-year-old Sergei Nasevich <laughs> against Mohamed Salah. <laughs> and Stephen. And I can't believe that we decided to use VAR at the World Cup and that that Omani referee who'd never previously <laughs> used the system before decided that was definitely a penalty for Senegal. Don't forget how you can get in touch at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will collate and consider all your correspondence when we are together again. Please, in the meantime, subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and particularly Andy. And thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with part two of our set piece menu summer special series for you to enjoy very soon. I can't but be- I can't believe that, that happened. Yeah. Chinch, Chinch notes. I know. Remarkable. Are you it's auditioning? Is, is this your way of auditioning for something that we don't know about, Chinch? I, you know, I just got me <laughs> with Jimmy that's got me thinking, should I be more of a visionary? Yes. What what could I what should I be how can you be a visionary you're asking other people what I should have a vision about? How can you be a visionary in Superdrive? Yeah, what can I change for the better, Steve, apart from your T shirt? <laughs> <laughs> This is a very, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very, it's a very fashionable thirty percent half. What time are you team. playing tennis? Anyway, <laughs> have you been watching Sky's coverage of Championship football and thinking, do you know what David Prutner's not got the chin for this presenting <laughs> That's, true. Yeah. That's, That's true. very true. Everything else, I mean, the man ah. is wildly talented. So you should have sharper facial features. Yeah. Mm. Just more, for the championship? The more pronounced you are, the more people take you seriously in the lower ah, leagues. It could be time for you to step up, Chinch. Do you think so? Yeah. I'm not sure I'm a presenter, really. No, this face? No. I, don't, I don't think you should mm. be taking even more work away from me. Um, Steve, you're next week. I hope you've got three pages of notes. I that's have. all I'm that's all.